Amen. All right. We are continuing our study through the book of Colossians today. And uh, last week, we looked at the clothing and the identity. Paul tells us that the way that we clothe ourselves can be an indicator of many things in our lives. And we talked about the fact that what we wear can make a statement. If you wear a certain uniform, like we have a brother over here that is in beautiful burnt orange, and if he was to pull back the left side of his jacket just slightly, you would obviously and immediately understand where his uh, loyalties lie, and to which I would say, amen. (laughs) But clothing doesn't make a person, but it is a clear indicator of some of the thoughts, feelings, attitudes, actions, or whom they may identify with. And, uh, and those things are really important because the world judges us by what they see oftentimes before what they hear. Amen? We, we can see, you know, I mean, have you ever been behind a car and you see a bumper sticker and you're like, well, okay. I see some, of the, some of the bumper stickers, man, wow, okay. I don't know if it's courage or foolishness, but there's a short distance between the two. What what Paul was saying is this, is that our faith should be and will be a transformational power in our lives. Faith transforms people. I'll say this as a freebie. If you claim faith, but you are not in the process of being transformed, if you can look back 12 months or maybe even 12 years or three decades and you're no different than you were then, it's problematic. And you probably need to talk about it. But faith transforms people. And Paul says, this is what faith will look like in what we wear. We should have compassion. We should have kindness. We should have humility. We should have gentleness. We should have patience. These are the types of clothing that we should wear that people can see. Wednesday night, if you're not plugged in on Wednesday night, I want to encourage you to do that. It's worth your time and effort for sure. We talked about the fact that our, that our closet is constantly being added to our clothing. Now, at my house, in my closet, because I don't share my bride's closet, she has her closet, I have my closet. Two different closets, and the two shall ne'er meet. <laughs> now, in my closet, I have a very rigid rule. One new article in, one old article out. That's my rule. Now... My bride runs her kingdom in a different way, and that's okay. That's okay. Amen, right? But in, but in my kingdom of my closet, there's some very, and, you know, it's just, it just is. But Paul says, as we go through this world, and the world tries to hand us clothing, that we need to be constant and, and consistent to wearing the clothing that more accurately depicts whose we really are and who we really are. And these are some of the characteristics of the clothing of godly individuals, okay? So today, we're going to talk about a family affair. And yes, I almost used Mr. French and them. How many of you ever watched the show A Family Affair, right? Mr. French. You remember how wealthy you thought they were? They look, that guy's got a, they've got a servant. And, uh, I always thought Mr. French just couldn't make it as Santa Claus maybe because he, he looked like Santa Claus to me. But today we're going to continue this, this. We're going to extend. So Paul is talking about the importance of the clothing of the individual 
because the clothing of the individual has an impact on the people around them. And today, Paul is going to speak specifically about family and a family affair. Amen? And so today, we're going to read a passage of Scripture. We're going to look at it. Now, you know, the funny thing about the word family, we use it for a lot of things, right? Um, and, and we consider a lot of different people family for a lot of different reasons, right? So I wanted to give us a working definition of family. <clears throat> the American Psychological Association defines it as this. The family is the fundam- the fun- the fun- <laughs> I, was, I almost went to funk, the fundamental. Anyway. That's on channel three. I'll bring it back later. But the family is the fundamental social unit of most human societies. But its form and structure can vary widely, including the biological family, your birth family, the extended family, the step family, and even groups of friends known informally as families. Family members influence each other's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Amen? The people you associate with will have an effect on your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. It's just inevitable. And so when we're talking about family, it's not just the the nuclear biological family. We can also have a wider family. There are people in my life that are not biologically related to me that I am closer to as family than my biological family just because of time, life experiences, you know, doesn't make one better than the other. They're just different. So I want to take us really quickly back to the original family. The family is the first institution created by God. How important is the family? God created it first. That's how important it is. And it began with Adam and Eve. And let's look at God's instructions. Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with, uh, with flesh. I always think about that when you're going under the knife. Are they going to take that rib from me? Anyway, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God created the institution of the man, and he created the couple, and he gave, And I'm so glad in God in his infinite wisdom saw it was not man for, good for a man to be alone. He created a helpmate, and I am thankful for my helpmate. And so today, we want to take just a minute. Now, if for you guys right here, one of these days you might get married, maybe, Maybe, maybe probably not, maybe. So this is free for you. This is, man, you can tuck this away. So let's real quick, the world's making of a marriage. So let's look at this. So you need a groom and you need a bride. All right, that's that's kind of important, two base elements there. And the, the, the groom and bride need to have things in common, right? Now, you don't exactly match, right? My bride and I, when we first met, we were very different. Amen? Did you see her roll her eyes? Did you see that? We were. We were. We were. But we had things in common, but we were different. 
And the world says that the things that a couple should have in common is their hopes. What do they hope to do? What do they hope to accomplish? How do they hope to get there? Their goals and their dreams. And that can be financial. That can be educational. That can be um, career. That can be family. All those things fall into that. And then these two come together, and then they start building this dream. Now, the challenge about the way the world says we should build a marriage is sometimes feelings, hopes, and dreams, and ambitions change. Amen? Listen, you know, if you're 18 to 24, what you believe and desire and dream for changes by the time you get to be 58. Trust me. And so as those things begin to change, guess what can happen? The couple may grow closer together, but there is the risk, what, of drifting. And, and the way we see things differently, our, our different ambitions. You know, maybe, maybe the bride wants to be a stay-at-home mom, but maybe the groom wants to have everything he can, he can everything he gets, and sits on the can. He wants two incomes, no kids. She wants five kids and one income. That's problematic. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. But what it is is that the goal continually moves. It's like going golfing. And every stroke that you take, they move the cup on the green. Would you, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? You know, you're like, well, where is it this time? Where, the goals can move. So the way the world envisions building a home and a healthy marriage, I'm not going to say it's wrong, but I'm saying there is room for problematic concerns. Now, God has a different plan. What? God has a different plan. He actually does. Now, there are some similarities. You need a groom and a bride. And yes, there are those similarities of, of common things, uh, and there can be differencing things. But the difference between God's plan and the world's plan is the primary focus of the individuals in the marriage. You see, in God's plan, the primary focus is his son, Jesus. And in God's plan, the groom wants to grow into the image of Christ. And the bride wants to grow into the image of Christ. And what you see here is this, is as the two grow closer to the Lord, what happens? They, by default, what? Grow closer together, amen? And so as they come together, and also the standard by which success is gleaned isn't based on public opinion, political stocks, all those things, it's God's word, right? It's not based on feelings, dreams, hopes, all those things. It's based on God's word. And what, what's the thing about God's word? God's word never changes. The goal doesn't change. And so as these two individuals are growing into Christ's likeness through the same goals determined by God's word, they by default grow closer together. And then we see a wonderful return on investment. As the bride and groom grow closer to the Lord, now the blessings begin to flow downwards. The bride and groom grow closer together. They have shared mutual interests. They have shared mutual passions. They have shared mutual goals. And then those things spill into the lives of their children. What a concept. It spills into the life of their church. It spills into the life of their community. As the family goes, so goes the children, so goes the church, so goes the community. Amen? Let me consult the choir. Amen? Amen, Jimmy, amen, amen. Thank you, Roy. Thank you. The blessings flow into the family, the extended family, the family of choice. 
the blessings flow into the career? Does your career work for your, you or do you work for your career? Does your, fa- does your career serve your family or does your family serve your career? Those things are determined by these things. Your influence and your legacy. Let me say this to you right now. One day, if the Lord tarries, people are going to get together in my absence and speak of me. And there's three hinges upon which my reputation will swing. And everything that my life ever was will swing on these three hinges. And if these three hinges are faulty or failed, then I have failed. That is the hinge that is my bride. That is the hinge that is my daughter and her family. And that is the hinge that is my son. Because my ministry begins in my home first. And if I failed my home, then everything else is tainted. As God's blessings and instructions flows down from a couple that is committed to knowing him... Our society is better, our children are better, our churches are better, our communities are better, our career is better, our influence is better, and our legacy is better. As the individuals go, so goes the home, and as the home goes, so goes the community. My friends, prove me wrong. Now, Timothy warns us. Now, I don't know if you know this. But the world seems to be losing its ever-loving mind. Now, I don't say that. I'm not judging. I'm, you know, I don't hate nobody. I'm just, I'm just looking, and I'm like, what? Well, Timothy warns us. But realize this: that in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, there's difficult times in every generation. Amen. Verse two: for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderous, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and unholy. Unloving, unreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Oh my goodness, are they watching the headlines on the news? Was Timothy a time traveler? Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness. A form of godliness. What form? The form they think it should be. Although they have denied its power and avoids avoids such people as these. As the individuals go, so the family goes. As the family goes, so culture goes. Ladies and gentlemen, I would dare you to prove me wrong. That part of the challenge in our culture today is because it reflects many of the homes today. The children that we are wrestling with today, my friends, we raised them up. And the children that will be behind them, those, we're raising them up as well. Now, don't hear me say that we throw the baby out with the bath, but let me just remind you, the bath could be better. Today's passages is verses 3, chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. I know you're thinking, what, you hadn't even started yet? Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting into the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now here I practice exegetical teaching. Josh does it 
and Chuck does it as well. I love exegetical teaching for a lot of reasons, and one of them is it doesn't allow you to sidestep difficult verses. You know why? If you're here today and this gets into your toes, it's because God brought you and his word because this was next man up. This is a very challenging passage of Scripture. You know why? Because of its misapplication and its misinterpretation. But it is a good passage of Scripture because God saw fit to give it to us. And today I hope for us to wrestle with it a little bit, better understand it, and better understand how we can apply it. Paul's speaking to the ladies first, not because uh, as a derogatory. Paul doesn't speak to the ladies first because they need it the most. In fact, Paul's speaking to the ladies in this writing indicates something that is new and unique to Christianity. Understand that this letter is written to the church. Now, anyone can read it. Anyone can learn from it and prosper from it. But its primary audience is believers. And so as he's writing this letter and he speaks and addresses the ladies first... He is showing a newfound respect and position and value for women that was not custom in the day. The truth is, is that in the day of this writing, ladies didn't have much position in the world. They didn't have much authority in the world. And they were taken for granted and abused on multiple levels. Paul, speaking to the lady first shows their importance and value and how important what he says to them and about them should be heard. Ladies, let me say this to you today. I thank God for women, and I thank God for godly women. Our world would be utter chaos without you. And I can't imagine the difficulty, the challenges of being a godly woman and all that our society asks of you. And I just want you to know, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, I'm not man enough to be a woman. And so I hope that as we walk through this, you understand that Paul is not being derogatory. Paul is not being a patriarchal knucklehead. Paul, in fact, is talking about the beauty and the preeminence and the position of women uh, in, in God's kingdom. Paul speaking to the ladies first does not put a derogatory thing. Look, I'm so good, I got ahead of myself. Paul is speaking of a voluntary submission. Now, we don't like this word submission. One is Americans. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm an American. When we use the word submission, everyone kind of bristles a little bit. But I can tell you what. When submission is done properly and thoroughly, it's the best place in the world to be. So let's look what Corinthians says about submission. 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, again, believers, stand firm. What does that mean? Don't, don't blow in the wind. You're not to be pushovers. Stand firm. This isn't a command to the weak. This is instruction to the strong. Amen? Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully. What does that mean? Submission. To what? To the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Submission is one of the most attractive and most powerful positions in influencing people. 
Recently, I was having a conversation about a ministry opportunity. And in this conversation, I was told, well, listen, we, I, we, there would be no one else who we would ask to do this. And my response to them was this. That is very kind and that is very flattering. I said, however, I tried to live my life with the idea it's better to be asked up to the platform than to be asked off of it. Why? I want to be submissive. Listen, I'm not all that in a bag of chips, but I do like a bag of chips. And we can get so full of ourselves that we think we make these assumptions and these expectations of this and that and the other. Listen, I'm the lead pastor. You know, blah, 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 blah. No, listen, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm a, I'm a pilgrim on a journey. I'm a man who's a shadow of the man he once was, but a shadow of a man he, he plans to become. Submission is not a bad word. In our culture, we bristle against it, and it's, it's, it's abused and misused. But my friends, when properly done, it's a beautiful thing. Ephesians 5.21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, that changes the tone, doesn't it? Listen, my submission to my bride, in part, is my reverence to the Lord. I'm trying to do what God has instructed me to do, and she is the benefactor of it. And when I do what God calls me to do, and whatever it is, and especially this, I am reverencing the Lord. I am glorifying the Lord. And so we see here that, that when we humble ourselves, it is glorifying to the Lord. Paul continues with a charge to the men. Now, ladies, I want to apologize on behalf of society and a lot of men. Because we could be meatheads. I don't know how many times I have been in premarital counseling and postmarital counseling and divorce counseling and pre-divorce counseling and all points in between, and I get some meathead who sits across my desk from me and tells me, well, you need to tell her to submit. Okay. One of the greatest books I ever read in my life, men, was given to me as a young man. Steve Farr's book called Point Man. Ladies, Paul is asking you to submit, which means to follow the leadership of your husband if you're married. And the challenge that we face, men, now guys, I need you to reach down and grab hold of your pew, but it's about to get a little rough for us. This book, one of the greatest illustrations of this book, and the title comes from it, is when military units are moving out, they put a person on the front, and they're called the point man. And the point man is responsible for the lives of, of everyone behind him. The safety, the security, the information, the protection, the guidance for the people behind him. The point man, guess what? If everything goes tango uniform, 
The point man is first in. The point man, when you're on point, you need to be ready to lay down your life because you just might get the opportunity to do it. And when I read this book, I understood for the first time what my role truly meant in the life of my marriage. Can't recommend it enough. It's been around a long time. Paul continues with a charge to man. He says this, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. See, part of the challenge is this, is far too many men only want to claim scripture when they think it fits their argument. Countless as a man, I have looked in the eye and I said, listen, don't quote scripture because you don't live scripture. Paul speaks to us as men. He says, men, love your wives. And the word he uses there is agape love. This is the highest form of love. This is sacrificial love. This is point man kind of love. This is that you would give everything and anything type of love. This is a love that doesn't have qualifiers. I only love you if. I only love you when. I only love you because. No, no. This is the love that is love. You got it, you keep it. It's a responsibility. I'm going to be doing a wedding later this next week. That young man's going to be reminded, here you go, chief. Now you got it. It's a responsibility. Men, hear me. We will give an account for how we have led our families. You will give an account. You will be held accountable. But it's also a reward. What a privilege. What a joy. My mama made me take home ec because she said, God didn't promise you a wife and you're not staying with me. God not only gave me a wife, but he gave me a family. What a privilege. And he gave me a grand girl. What a privilege. He says that we are called to be a partner. We're called to be a protector. We're called to be a provider. We're called to be a leader. And ladies, I understand that sometimes we men forfeit this leadership role, and I'm sorry about that. I had a sister who was a single mom and raised two great kids, and she had to be the leader in the absence of those kids' father. And she did a wonderful job. And uh, I was privileged to be a part of her team for that. Ephesians 5.25 tells us this. Husbands, love your wives. Okay. I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Happy birthday. You see, the problem that we face is this, is what the world says love is and what God says love is is two different things. And everybody wants God's kind of love on the world's type of economy. It doesn't work that way. What does it say? Husbands, love your wives. Well, I do that. Well, what's it look like? As Christ loved the church. Oh. Okay. And gave himself up for her 
Oh, well, that, that kind of changes the tone, doesn't it, Chuck? Wait a minute. Tell you what, the world will be a different place if more men love their brides as Christ loved the church. Paul continues with a charge to the men. He goes down, not only are we to be partner, protector, provider, leader, but we need to guard our hearts at all costs. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. Gentlemen, you need to be on guard. You need to guard your heart. Don't give me the excuse. The responsibility starts with you. Now, it doesn't end with you, but it starts with you. If you want to guard your heart, you build the defenses and you be earnest to it and you invite accountability. My bride has 24-7 access on my phone. My phone has never had a password. Now, I'm not saying passwords are wrong, but I'm just saying for me, one, I don't want to have to put it in every time I want to check my Facebook. Two, is my bride or any one of you can walk in and pick up my phone anytime you want And look anywhere you want. You know why? Because there's nothing in there. And one of the reasons there's nothing in there is because you just might look. And when temptation comes my way, and it does, I know I'm not the only one that gets those emails. Hey, John, what are you doing? Well, I'm sorry. uh, This isn't John. Oh, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to interrupt you. What are you doing? No. It's not just me. I show them to my bride for accountability. Babe, look at this. And then I block them. I usually send this note, shame on you. The devil just sitting on the other end laughing. But guys, you know what? It's a slow fade. And it's from the inside out. Gentlemen, it's our responsibility to guard our hearts because our hearts will drive our homes and our hearts will go, will drive our love for our brides. Gentlemen, mm, I got to go on. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for it is pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children so that they do not become disheartened. Paul goes from the bride to the groom, and now he speaks to the children. I believe children have spiritual bill of rights. Amen? Number one, children have the right to be born. Number two, children have the right to Christian parents. Number three, children have the right to a Christian home. And number four, children have the right to a Christian church. This is General William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army. I would love to have a cup of coffee with that guy. He's got stories. Look at him. Doesn't he just beg you to go, hey, man, what's up? (laughs) William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, found himself in a bit of a pickle. Because, Jeff, ministry is always convenient. There was a man by the name of John H. Starkey. He was a violent British criminal. He murdered his own wife and then was convicted for the crime and executed. And guess who they called for the funeral? Brother Booth. 
Brother Booth stood, and I don't know who goes to this man's funeral, his family, obviously. And then I'm sure there were plenty of enemies in the crowd. Booth faced as ugly and as mean a crowd as he had ever seen in his life. But his first words stopped them and held them. John H. Starkey never had a praying mother. Every child deserves to be prayed for. Paul turns his instructions to the children and the fathers. The command to obey is non-negotiable except when it conflicts with God's teachings. Students, hear my words. What God asks you to do is a good thing. When I was a young man, I did not follow what God had to say for me. And there were prices to be paid. Uh, regrettable memories were made. And unfortunately, I besmirched my family's name on occasion. And what God asks you to do and not to do is not because he doesn't love you. And it's not because I don't love you. It's because he and I wants you to avoid the pitfalls, the landmines, and the bear traps. Because the price of admission can be very, very high. Just about two weeks ago here in our very city, we saw the price of admission cost a young man his life. And what he calls students to do is to obey their parents unless... They're, they're taught and led against uh, God's teachings. The command to, be, to obey sets a tone for life. The command to obey is a tone setter for the children's life. First, it reflects to their parents in their home. And I was going to put on there, and I didn't, but I'm going to go ahead and say that it also reflects to their church. What students do has a direct reflection upon those in authority over them. When I was a young man, I didn't think about those things, but as a 58-year-old man, and my father's right on the other side of that green light sitting above you, I would move heaven and earth not to bring reproach on my father. Because even as a 58-year-old man, I reflect upon my parents. It reflects upon your faith. We cannot say, I have faith, yet deliberately and intentionally and consistently disobey God's word. We can't say that. It reflects on our growth and our maturity. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes, because guess what? We all do. We still do. I still do. But it means that we don't strive to continue those mistakes. It means that we grow from those mistakes. It reflects to the participation with the authorities in our lives. What we do as children begin to set a tone and students, if you cannot submit to your parents, it will set a tone. And you will not be submissive to your teachers. You will not be submissive to the authorities in your life. And I've said this time and time again. If you do not learn to submit one day, 
you will submit. And it will be to someone in a long black robe. And come and talk to me about the people that I've gone to visit in jail who sat exactly where you sat. He goes on, and now he turns to us as dads. Dads, it's a tough day for us. Proverbs 27, the righteous who walk in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. And when we walk with the Lord, our children are blessed. Why? Because they are the benefactors of those things. I want to be a good dad. I wanted to be a good dad. I'm a better dad today than I was 30 years ago. And I want to be a blessing to my grandgirl. Proverbs 13 says this, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, and he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Dil- discipline is important. Clear, measurable, it's good. It's important. I love this quote. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. That's a lot. For those of you that are raising kiddos, I love you. God bless you. Some of us are a little further down the road. Amen. (laughs) But you know what? Now God has given us another new arrow. Isn't that right, love? And I pray that the Lord gives me enough time to help shape that arrow like we shaped our two. And I believe by faith that they, that Mia will be a person of character and love and all the things that our children are. Because we are the direct influencers of the future. Don't curse the future. Build the future. And we build that one life at a time. Sometimes as fathers, we must learn, <coughs> excuse me, we must unlearn some of what we experienced and learned. My birth parents taught me a lot of lessons and not a lot of them were good. And when I became a parent, I decided that I was going to do something different and to the glory of the Lord I have. First and foremost, I started watching my life parents and my dad taught me what it was like to be a godly husband and a godly man. We must continue to learn to adjust our relationship with our kids Here's a couple of books, just a couple of them, that as a father and as a parent, parents, let me, let me tell you this, you never stop learning, you never stop growing, you never stop adapting, because kids, man, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. But one of them I read was this, is what kids need most in a dad, because the truth is, is what I thought they needed and what God says they needed weren't always the exact same thing. And then another one that was really important. (laughs) Because I'm a prideful man. Was learning how to apologize to my kids. Because there's a time and there's a place. And there's a way to do it. we want to teach our children what it means to look like to be humble and submissive it means that we have to eat our pride when we're wrong 
This is a great book. <clears throat> Children as adults, you may need to grow beyond what you've experienced. I say, I say that to say this. Listen, get over it. Listen, we all grew up with something and someone and some something. But stop making that your excuse. There comes a time in life when you just got to grow up and get over it. And students, young people, don't fall into the, the pit of what, listen, you make your choices and then your choices make you. You don't get to blame your parents all of their life. Trust me. Trust me. I had things. And a lot of the very stupid and poor decisions that I made were in direct correlation to the blame I placed on my parents, my birth parents. Folks, there just comes a time in life when we got to grow up and get over it. Stop making excuses. Just own it and get on with it. Life's too short. Quickly, very quickly, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in every aspect, not only when they are watching like those who are strict, uh, strictly people pleasers, but with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you're doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to people. Because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Serve the Lord uh, serve the Lord Christ, for the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there are no exceptions. First of all, Paul is not endorsing slavery. Slavery is always wrong. Always, always, always. And Paul is not endorsing slavery by this statement. But what Paul is speaking to is the hearts of believers. Remember, the letter's original audience are believers. And in speaking to them, he's talking to their hearts. And he's talking to the way that they would live under authority. Also, he's talking to those who would be in authority. He calls them to live and to serve under the Lord, unto the Lord as a public testimony. And then he speaks to the masters. Treat your slaves with justice and fairness because you know that you also have a master in heaven. We talked about this in the early uh, Bible study is to influence our culture, we have to speak to the heart of people because when the heart transforms, the mind transforms. And when the mind transforms, the actions and attitudes transform. And Paul is speaking to the minds and the hearts of believers and he's challenging them and look at what it says in Galatians. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become what? Slaves to one another. How can I enslave someone when God calls me, what? To submit myself to them. The transformation of the heart leads to the transformation of the mind, which leads to the transformation of the actions. We must speak to the heart of our culture. We must speak to the heart of our community. And as they meet the Lord and grow in the Lord, it will he will transform the way they think and it will transform the way they conduct themselves. 
We should not overlook how radical this message would have sounded in the early church amid Roman's slave society. Can you imagine that a man who is the patriarch, who has the final word, who has basically carte blanche to do whatever he wants to whoever he wants, as often he wants, and as much as he wants? Paul says no. Paul says no. What a radical statement this is in that culture. And you know what? Mutual love, sacrifice, and commitment is just as radical in our culture as this statement was in Paul's day. Even in the New Testament, authors did not proclaim the end of slavery. Their redefinition of freedom and uh, and slavery challenged the fundamental social values of their day. How do these messages sound today? The New Testament asks us to question the structure of power and status. And in closing this, if we consider slavery to be illegal and immoral, and I think everyone in here would, are there ways that we fail to recognize the basic humanity of people around us? The manger says everyone is valuable. The baby in the manger was for everyone. Why? Because everyone's valuable. And we have to be very careful. We're in a different context and in a different culture, but we still have to be very intentional that we see God's value for people and respond accordingly. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I just thank you for this day. And Father, I just thank you for your instruction. Paul, I thank you for my family. Lord, I thank you for the family that I was raised in and all of our imperfections. But I thank you for a father who loved you and loved his bride. And I thank you for a mother who loved you and loved her groom. Father, I thank you for the legacy of faith that was imparted to me long before I valued it. Father, I thank you for my family, for my bride. Father, I thank you for the man that I've become and for the man I'm yet to become. And Father, I pray today that we would be encouraged. Lord, life is hard. Relationships are hard. But they're worth it. Father, I pray that our world would see a uniqueness in the lives, in the relationships, and in the families that claim the name of Christ. Not perfect, but striving. Father, help us to have courage and wisdom in these days that are difficult. Father, we pray a blessing over our students, our children, our grandchildren. Father, protect them. 
from the evil of these days. Father, we just love you and we thank you for the gifts that are ours to enjoy and to share in and to guard and to grow. We thank you for one day heaven. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So next week we're going to take a pause in our study of Colossians. Let's go ahead and stand. Because next Sunday for Christmas, we're going to begin a very brief Christmas sermon series entitled, The Questions of Christmas. And you're wondering, well, what questions would that be? And Ronnie, I would say you'll have to show up to find out. But if you know me at all, you'll know these aren't your granddad's questions. So we're going to have a good time in this over the next few weeks. I hope that you will be here and I hope that you will invite folks to come and join with you. Let's sing together, shall we?